Welcome to The Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized badass disability rights activist, Judy Human. This episode, Judy interviews Nick Bruckman and Audie Barkett. Nick is the director of the documentary Not Going Quietly, which follows Audie and his journey into progressive politics after being diagnosed with ALS and stepping into the spotlight to ignite a movement for universal health care. Enjoy this conversation between Nick, Audie, and Judy, and please check out Not Going Quietly on Hulu. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Kylie Miller, and Judy Human. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Human Perspective. Today, we're going to be speaking with Nick Bruckman and Audie Barkin. And uh, Nick is the director of Not Going Quietly, and Audie is the main character in the movie. I don't know how many of you have seen the film, but I strongly encourage you to do so. It is an important historical piece about activism in the United States. And Audie, who started out as an activist and acquired ALS as he was moving forward with his quest to secure adequate health care. And so today, what we're going to be learning about is more about the film, why it was done, and also about Audie and the man he is, and some of his vision for the future. For me, the value of the film is that it really demonstrates activism and the drive that some people have when fighting for an objective or multiple objectives. So welcome, both of you, to the program. Thank you so much, Judy, for having us for this conversation and for your incredible leadership over the decades. Thank you. You're getting into decades, too, now. I'm so glad we were able to make this happen. So I'd like to start out with you, Nick. Can you give us a little bit more information about why you decided you wanted to do this movie? How did you learn about Audie? And why did you want to make this film? Thank you, Judy. Great to see you, Adi. And echoing everything Adi said, but what an honor it is to be here and share the virtual podcast stage with you, Judy. I was greatly inspired, amongst many other things, by your work and by the film Crip Camp, um, which is another incredible testament to the power of activism to create social change, um, which I saw um, right as we were in the final stages of making Not Going Quietly, and it gave me a boost in the arm about the story I wanted to tell and, and how stories can make a difference in the world. I have been telling stories for a long time. I was making films as a little kid growing up with a VHS camcorder. And um, around, uh, I was a, I'm a New York City native, uh, raised, and around the time that 9-11 happened, um, I became uh, politically aware. I was a teenager going to school and living in Manhattan and became very aware of the impact that our country's foreign policy has on the world. And it was a sort of awakening moment. I went down to the side of the Twin Towers with my movie camera to see how I could help. Of course, there was very little I could do, but I decided in the subsequent wars and in the activism that I became engaged in of anti-war movement here in New York that I really wanted to dedicate my passion for storytelling into documentaries and into social justice work and try to combine those two passions. And that led me to starting a company, doing films for brands, doing films for nonprofits, a lot of social change films. 
And that led me to meet Adi uh, many years later in 2018, when he and Liz Jaff launched the Be a Hero movement. Um, Adi had just met Senator Jeff Flake on that fateful day on an airplane, where he told his story and was propelled to the national spotlight as the face of the movement for universal health care, which he still is um, today. And he needed a short film made, him and Liz, um, to launch their campaign. And I was hired to make that short film and flew out to meet him in Santa Barbara. And as many do, as you see in the film, um, was completely transfixed, <laughs> fell in love, um, was moved to tears, and of course was incredibly inspired by Adi, by, by who he is, more so than just his activism. And I pitched him basically that first day, hey, after we finish this short launch video, what do you think about letting me tag along for what turned out to be about three years? And fortunately, he said yes, and I think was able to convince the other members of the family to do so as well. So that's the abbreviated version. Thank you very much. And Audie uses a communication device. I was wondering, Audie, if you could give us a little bit more information about the device you use. I use iGaze technology to write and speak. A small bar below my tablet tracks exactly where I am looking on my screen which allows me to type by looking at each letter in order to spell out each word. The software also has good some predictive text generation. Then I press a speak button, and the text is converted to audio. Having to type things out one letter at a time means there are hundreds of things I want to say every day that I just can't get out there, phone calls I want to jump in and say things on, and things I want to say to the people closest to me, especially my kids Carl and Willow that just take too long to articulate. And yet, I am so grateful for the technology that does allow me to communicate. The fact that I can have this conversation at all is incredible, and I am so fortunate to do it despite my paralysis. There are many different types of communication devices, and it's really uh, very interesting to see how over the last decades, communication devices have improved. You know, many years ago, there were no devices that allowed for eye gazing. So I think it's really very important for so many reasons, Addie, that you continue to play a very vibrant role to allow people to learn so many different things about you, part of which is your ability to communicate with eye gazing equipment. And hopefully people like you and others who are using augmentative communication devices really continue to become empowered about recognizing that communication devices really enable people to live their lives in a way where you don't disappear. So uh, thank you for really the transitions that you've made in your life. And um, I think that in and of itself is one of the important parts of the film for me is how you you know, really have stuck with it. Maybe you could uh, start sharing, why did you agree to making the film? Uh, why did you believe that it would be a valuable film to be made and also make yourself and your family, you know, very exposed? When Nick first approached my wife, Rachel, and I, we initially had reservations, but we thought the film would be a great memento for Carl and Willow to have when I'm not around anymore. Of course, my children know me as their silly dad but I also want them to be able to know who I am and how their existence motivated me to fight for a better world until my last breath. I also thought the movie could provide a useful tool for the progressive movement, 
It is about my family, but it is also about the millions of Americans who came together during the Trump presidency to preserve our democracy. Being part of the movement for justice has given me purpose, a community, and the chance to nudge our society in the right direction. I want viewers to know that I've found great joy and meaning in the struggle for justice, even as ALS has paralyzed my body. And I want them to know that a sense of purpose and the opportunity to give back are things available to everyone who becomes part of the fight for a more just society. Thank you. Um, you entered the world of disability quite abruptly when you were diagnosed with ALS. Could you share with us what some of your views were about disabled people prior to acquiring your disability? And how have those views changed um, over the last number of years? Like many able-bodied people, I didn't have strong opinions about disability before I got sick. I was a progressive activist, and I was working for economic and racial justice, but I didn't think about society or politics through a disability lens. My exposure to the idea of disability justice began as I learned to navigate my own deteriorating body and as I became dependent on home care in the context of the moral abomination that is our health care system. I knew our health care system was broken before my diagnosis, but having a serious illness made it personal. Initially, my insurance company refused to cover the equipment and home care I need to live. This is just one example of how our system preys on disability for the profit of a few. And, this is just one part of my story that I've been sharing with the help from people like Nick, hoping to create a louder drum beat as part of the disability movement. I now understand that we can't have healthcare justice without centering disability justice. It is within our reach to design a more inclusive society, one where disabled people have the support they need to lead independent lives. And our politicians owe it to us to create policy that centers our lived experiences. Our stories are powerful tools for change. We need to tell the stories of disabled people and move us to action. And I am very grateful that Nick told my story in such a beautiful way. So you today identify yourself as a part of the disability movement. Is that correct? Are you active in any organizations? Well, most importantly, I still help lead the Be a Hero organization, and we are fighting for healthcare justice including as part of a coalition of organizations working together to win home care for everyone. That's good to know, and we'll have to talk about that separately. How do you keep moving forward in your fight for health care? Well, I could answer that in various ways. But the most immediate and direct way that I am surviving is thanks to great technology and great people. I told you about my communication technology. But even more elemental to my survival are my ventilators, which have been running nonstop and without fail for three years. And I also depend on my suction machine to keep my airway clear, and my wheelchair. The other ingredient is people. If I did not have my 24-hour team of caregivers, I would have no other option but to be in a nursing home, or choose to die. In a nursing home, my quality of life would deteriorate dramatically, and I'd be isolated from my family and community. My caregivers, like Izzy and Mario who are both featured in the film, allow me to live at home where I can be with my family every day. 
Carl and Willow can climb up onto my lap and we can have conversations or listen to music together. Full-time home care also allows me to work every day with Be A Hero to fight for a more just health care system, which must include long-term home and community care, so that my reality of reliable, well-paid, and professional home care is available to all. What have you learned about yourself over the last six years or so? I actually am struggling to answer that thoughtfully. I don't know why it's a hard question for me, but I will have to get back to you. Well, let me project a little bit. I presume that you have learned that you're more resilient than you ever thought you would have to be. Is that true or false? Well, true. But I also find myself being more fragile and weak than I want to be, and that is the paradox I am struggling with. Okay. Nick, what role did your family and their connection to disability play in creating this film? Yeah, thanks for asking, Judy. I, um, I, I don't identify as somebody with a disability, um, and I was very conscientious about that, telling a story that even though Adi, as you said, was new to this community, it was something that I wanted to be very cognizant of telling that story right and in a way that was inclusive and in a way that didn't feel like an outsider entering that community. And a lot of that was just letting Adi lead the way and let Adi be the one to um, crack the jokes and Adi to be the one to tell us when we could enter the bathroom with him to film him shower and when we should back off. My background in coming to this um, has a lot of dis disability activism in my family. My, my grandfather was blind from age seven. He was Indian. And he uh, went back to India as an adult to start the Lighthouse for the Blind in Calcutta. Um, this was in the 1940s and 50s when the blind had very little rights and no work opportunities of any kind. And even now today in Calcutta, there's a picture of him hanging up there. He's uh, long deceased, but I went there and they were all very excited to see me. And it was one of the most kind of moving experiences of my life. And my aunt, Vicki Bruckner, was... Um, born with cerebral palsy and is actually a contemporary of yours, Judy, and knows you for a long time. Yeah, I was going to say, in, in full disclosure, we're friends. Uh, she was very proud of me to know that that you had, you'd had an opportunity to see it and connect with you about it. And uh, that to me was very gratifying because she told me a lot growing up. Um, she's really my closest relative, her and her husband, Bill. Both of them are lifelong disability rights activists. My uncle Bill also has a disability. And it stayed with me very strongly from the early days where I picked up a movie camera. She told me, I remember watching some kind of Christmas fundraiser, and she told me one day as a kid, I was in one of these in the 1950s. They put me on TV in my leg braces for Christmas, and they made me stand there while they took phone calls and raised donations. And it was the most humiliating and painful memory of my childhood. And I don't ever want people with disabilities portrayed in that way. And that really stuck with me. And I remember one time I got a documentary, I won't say what it was, I think it was produced by Oprah and had a very patronizing view of disabled folks. And I showed it to her because I thought it'd be a good present. And she explained to me that this isn't, this isn't the way it's done. And so I had a, you know, a lot of teaching moments. I had teaching moments with Adi too, where I had to learn about how to work with him and respect his boundaries. And I also, you know, worked a bit with the disability community. I had the opportunity, we consulted with Reed Devin. Port, who's an incredible uh, filmmaker with a disability. I wanted to make sure that 
the story felt that it had authenticity, even acknowledging that I am not from that community. And so those were the steps we've taken. And one thing that I'm really interested in, but but haven't done yet, and I think is a further step for me as a um, somebody in, in a production company, I have a, a business telling stories for social change, is to really work with more filmmakers with disabilities. Um, I think this is a really important movement that's unfolding now that folks like Reed are, are part of. And that's something that I'd really like to move forward in my storytelling with as well, in terms of the teams that we built for our films. I think there's a long way to go in inclusive production environments um, and something that I'm very passionate about because of my family's background and because of the opportunity to tell Adi's story. I think you probably know about Forward Doc, which Jimmy Labrack, who is one of the co-directors for Criff Camp, and I know is friends with your producer, he and a number of other people have started that organization, uh, Forward Doc, with the vision of bringing together disabled individuals who are doing documentaries as well as others like yourself who want to learn from disabled documentarians. So, Audie, getting back to you, your family is a prominent part of the film, even though they were not with you while you were traveling. Can you talk about the role that they played on your journey? I am incredibly lucky to have my wife, Rachel, and our two kids, Carl and Willow. A part in the film where I look directly into the camera and talk about my son, Carl, and how I want him to be proud of me. I was holding back tears the first time I watched the film at home, imagining how much of Carl's future I would miss, and how my absence would affect him all the while grieving all of what ALS has already stolen from us. I wrote my memoir and agreed to do the documentary because I wanted my children to know me, not just remember me. I want them to know how I live and how I love them. I wanted them to know that I did everything I could to leave behind a kinder and gentler world for them to mold. But I have lived longer than I expected to. They know me now from their own experience. This weekend, we went to the zoo to see a beautiful nighttime light exhibit. We sat in the backyard at a friend's birthday party. And we bought a Christmas tree extra early, and the kids are already asking me to play them songs for exuberant living room dancing. These are real blessings. Absolutely. I really don't know Willow. She was just so little. But if she's anything like Carl, you've got two amazing kids. And, you know, it's very clear that you and Rachel have been both a loving couple, but also I think very much focused, as you're saying, on making sure you're doing everything you can to help your children know who you are, your background, your strength, your vision, your fortitude. And I'm sure genetically that all is within them. I guess, Nick, I have a couple other questions right now for you. How has this documentary impacted you, both when you were making the film? Because as you explain, you didn't come to Audi with the thought of doing a full film. That's something that evolved. So maybe a little bit more about how and why that evolved. So the film is really about how the personal and the political are interwoven. And that's to me what Adi's story is about. We talked about the role that Adi's caregivers play in his life and the fact that Adi's able to spend time with his family because of the health care that he has and because of the caregiving that he receives 
in, in all the personal scenes in the film are really about are about our society, are about the political structures that we built for ourselves as a community, the support and resources that we provide people with disabilities. And in making the film, I didn't really realize that what I was making was that. I thought it was a film about activism. And what happened for me personally, and I've I've told Adi this before, which was that I was really focused on the election, the activism, the movement for universal health care, the Medicare for all bill. But the process of making the movie was actually spending time with Adi and Carl, as you see in the film. And of course, the movie becomes so much about that. And I went on my own parenting journey, making the film simultaneous. And the more I've thought about it, the more time that's passed since we made it, I realized that Adi is really directly responsible uh, for this because I had a very difficult relationship with my father for many reasons. He spent time in prison when I was younger. And I had a lot of complexes around fatherhood and was very unsure that I would be a good one. And I think one of the lessons of the film is not just about, again, all the, we can all be great activists, but it's also about Adi's ability to be a father in the face of the most difficult and challenging circumstances. And I, I remember um, one of the interviews we did on the road, you know, somebody said, one of the activists said, you know, if Adi can do it, what's your excuse? And of course, he wasn't talking about Adi being a father in that moment. He was saying, if Adi's out here on the road, rallying people up in his chair, fighting for these midterm elections, what are you doing at home? But to me, that was always like, what's my excuse about not wanting to take that journey? And so my partner and I did. And my son, Zephyr, was born three weeks before the movie premiered at South by Southwest. So I had this, you know, very connected moment. And so Adi's just the movie and the experience of the movie had this really personal transformative effect on me um, that I still think about. And I still think Adi can teach us all about. And that's to me what I hope the movie reflects is that our stories have power, that even our deepest trauma and pain, which we all feel, I think in some ways, Adi's pain and Adi's challenges are the most visible maybe of almost anybody's that we can think of, they're the most prominent, but all of us do have some challenges that we carry within us, whether from our family or from our society or from poverty or much like the women in the film who raise their voices about sexual assault, like Ana Maria Archila. She turns that pain into a source of power and inspiration for other people. And that's what Adi is for me. And that's what I hope the film is for other people. And generally, I'll just say I've become somewhat less jaded than I was before. I was very active as an activist in my younger days against in the Iraq war time. And then when George Bush won again in 2004, I said, fuck this, you know, like if Americans are going to be this dumb, <laughs> you know, and I think we've all been there at different moments. And then I saw, you know, on the road making this film that Margaret Mead quote of the small group of committed citizens changing the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I just saw that play out in real time when Adi and this ragtag group of activists flipped the midterms in 2018. And we just saw that happen again in 2022, where people stood up. And that's really made me believe in the power of collective action again. And I just hope a little bit of that comes through on screen. Adi is a very good source of that. Thank you. Adi, I want to turn this a little bit to um, your thoughts about the recent election. You know, for the audience, I'm sure it's quite clear that Adi and Nick and myself are progressives, we're Democrats. And uh, you see that in the film uh, with a number of the people that Audie meets with. But I'm wondering, Audie, what your thoughts were about the recent elections. I am pleased and relieved by the results. 
given to the dire expectations and the historical records. The outcome showed us people do care about abortion rights and they do care about democracy. It's a reminder that punditry doesn't matter but our votes do. While many right-wing extremists failed to win their election bids, many did win. This is why we have to stay involved and active. We must be louder than ever in our calls to protect and expand health care. I closely followed a ballot initiative, Prop 209 in Arizona, which passed with more than 70% support, protecting Arizonans from predatory debt practices, most of which pertains to medical debt. The fact that the Predatory Debt Collection Protection Act was voted for by such a wide margin shows that people are hungry for change and ready to enact health care justice on every level. I hope this inspires similar initiatives and local organizing throughout the country. There's a lot of work to be done, but placed in this context, it means there's also more community, more creation, and more healing that is bound to emerge from our labor. Yes, thank you very much. I share your views. And I think what we're also seeing, seeing other leaders who are focusing on the issue of statewide elections. I believe that one of the important aspects about what's been going on over the last number of years is the need for us to really to have a better understanding about the electoral process overall. And so frequently, our knowledge, and I will include myself in this, may be quite disjointed. You work on the federal level and not necessarily on state elections or local elections. And I think what we're seeing is how very important it is to really focus on school boards and judgeships and city council and county boards and state assembly and state senate on up the line since people frequently will move from one position to another. And you know, again, including myself, there are numbers of times when I don't know all of the candidates who are running for a broad range of local positions. And it's made me realize much more carefully that being knowledgeable about all we are voting for is really very important. Nick, what projects do you have coming up? Thank you. I'm working on um, a few new documentary projects um, that are in very different uh, worlds than the one that uh, we're talking about today, about not going quietly. Um, my company, People's TV, that was originally doing the videos for Be a Hero, is doing a lot of social justice-related storytelling. So we do films for Black Lives Matter, for Greenpeace, for The Nature Conservancy, and we also do other films for progressive candidates and causes during um, the election cycles. We did ads for Joe Biden in, in, in 2020. And in my feature storytelling, um, we are uh, working at People's TV about something set in the cryptocurrency world, which is a very, very different topic of much interest and um, social uh, controversy that I'm exploring, and also something um, about the food industry, both of which are kind of complex and interesting topics. These projects take a long time. I met Adi in 2018, and you know, here we are talking about the film in, in 2022. Um, so you really have to have a lot of commitment and you have to really, you know, want to spend time with somebody uh, for a couple of years in order to undertake this. So I tend to be very, very picky about the stuff I take on. How long did it take to make uh, Crip Camp, Judy? I, I know that you are in front of the camera, but I'm, I want to just turn the camera on you for one moment about that process as a participant. I mean, Jimmy and Nicole and Sarah Boulder, I think they worked on the film 
four or five years. I believe it was 2015 that they began. The film came out in 2020. So yeah, many years and an incredible amount of work, as people can see in Crypt Camp, as well as with the film that we're discussing today. Audie, I think you had a question or two that you wanted to ask me. Is that correct? I wanted to know how you feel about the state of the disability movement today, how it has changed, and where you hope it can go. Well, I think it's changed dramatically in my lifetime. You know, when I was growing up, there were things that were happening. And after the Second World War, there were disabled veterans organizations that were being supported and formed with the support and financing of Congress. They were working on many issues around accessibility and health care and support like personal assistance and attendance services. And there were many different types of groups, United Cerebral Palsy, Muscular Dystrophy Association, March of Dimes, organizations for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. But I would say there was not really a movement. And by that, I mean organizations that were really coming together to work more unified. That started happening in the late 60s and 70s with education laws like what was in the beginning called the Education for All Handicapped Children's Act, which is now called the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and Section 504, and the Americans with Disabilities Act, and other pieces of legislation. I think what we've been seeing over the last number of decades is disabled people coming together, even though they may be a part of a particular disability group, because that's the disability they have. Groups like the Consortium for Citizens with Disabilities, the National Disability Leadership Network, these groups are bringing people together. All of that's really important. People with um, mental health disabilities, with autism, epilepsy, all forms of hidden disabilities are becoming more outspoken in a constructive way. And by that, I mean advocacy related work, working on healthcare and other issues. And the movement itself is really evolving and growing. So, you know, my expectation is over the next three to 10 years that we will continue to see people recognizing the importance of working collaboratively across disability issues. And that legislation like healthcare, like personal assistance, like enforcement of existing laws, unemployment, discrimination, education, are becoming something which more people who have disabilities are recognizing that their voices make a difference. And one of the reasons why I find this film so powerful is, as I said in the very beginning, you entered the discussion around healthcare as a non-disabled person. It was clearly important to you as an individual but it became even more important to you and your family once you acquired your disability and really began to see how broken the system is and the changes that need to happen. So I think voices like yours and others who are coming forward are very important and also helping to provide guidance and leadership for people like myself who've had our disabilities our whole lives. 
and uh, maybe our expectations have been lower. So I think the collaboration is important because one, I think those of us who've lived with our disabilities for long periods of time are supportive and helpful to people like yourself when you're just entering the world of disability. And then we can learn a lot from you and others. And I think in many ways, your analysis of what it's been like entering the world of disability and the non-disability communities reactions are very important. I have another question for you. Go for it. The scenes in Crip Camp, particularly the 504 occupation, is some of the most incredible organizing and activism that I have ever seen. I am reading an epic history of the civil rights movement as well. And I fear that we don't organize with that rigor and dedication anymore. That we don't know how, we have lost the knowledge and the experience. Do you share that fear? I agree with what you're saying. And, you know, one of the reasons why the laws that we fought for have been so important is because disabled people were either isolated or segregated. Now, as a result of laws like 504 and the education law and the Americans with Disabilities Act and equally civil rights laws, people have been able to slowly become more integrated. And that I think also has been a blessing, but it's also impeded our ability to do the types of organizing that we were able to do before, because we either were going to camps together or schools together or in other environments where we knew each other more. So what I believe is important is the ability to strengthen groups in the disability community, like the American Association of People with Disabilities and local organizations like Centers for Independent Living and other associations that may have chapters and really talk about our histories and talk about some of the issues that you're raising right now, Audie. What enabled the types of demonstrations and activism? Because as we know, the demonstrations were not the totality of what was going on. Like when you looked at the Section 504 time period, it was from 1973 to 1977. The demonstrations were a culmination of many years of work. When you look at the civil rights movement and the Civil Rights Act of 64, that was something that clearly was not designed in a few months. It was something that was taking many years and many different approaches to be able to document, demonstrate, organize. So that kind of centralized leadership, I think new players and a vision of where we need to go and what we need to do to build alliances, confidences, uh, both within the disability community and externally. I think one other important thing that's been going on and still has a lot more work that needs to be done are disability groups now being more a part of organizations like the National Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Because the fact that disability is now a part of that coalition is important. That wasn't really true 
certainly in the 1980s, it's been something that's been evolving, but now I think it's in a much different place. So the value of the disability community being actively involved with the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights also is slowly beginning to mean that disability is a part of many of these other groups. So we need to keep our eye on the prize, as you're saying, and we need to be enabling people to learn both the history of where we've been over the last number of decades, but equally importantly, what is our vision? Where do we want to move forward? How do we do that? I think the healthcare legislation, for me, the Obama legislation was important for many reasons. But one of the critical reasons it was important is that people like yourself were fighting for it prior to your disability. The disability community with organizations like ADAPT and others had been fighting around deinstitutionalization from nursing homes, personal assistance services for a couple of decades before the Obamacare legislation was moving forward. And other groups, not disability rights groups, were actively, through people like yourself, working on fighting for the Obama healthcare legislation to be passed and then fighting against the Republicans as they were trying to dismantle it. So I think we need to look at the changes that have happened and look at what we need to do, what people need to learn, and also, I think, continuing to help people really train on what it means to be an organizer. Because as you know very well, most people are not just born with you know something stuck on their butt saying designated field organizing it's something that people need to learn and practice with other people thank you judy just want to echo adi about that time and about that activism which is to say that i'm so glad that it was documented then that footage of you as a young woman at that podium was preserved because it enabled you know everyone to be inspired by your lifelong work, Judy, but also for the film to be that training manual, which I think Crip Camp really can be. And when I was in the room filming Adi testify without a voice for Medicare for All, watching the members of Congress move to tears and watching Tracy do the bird dog training on the road, teaching uh, folks like Adi how to chase down politicians. That's what I want this film to be, is that training manual and that toolkit um, that preserves you know, your story, Adi's story, for the activists that come next and, and stand on, on both of your shoulders figuratively. So I, you know, I, I'm so glad that films like Crip Camp and Not Going Quietly can be a small part of the food or the nourishment for the movements that you're both a part of. And I think films like that need to have training materials. You know, there needs to be a way of people looking at Not Going Quietly and really learning from and asking questions about how Audi and others as organizers, what do they do? Why do they do it? How do they do it? Then I think also part of what is really uh, important about not going quietly, and of course, Crip Camp too, is the reluctance of people to really look at making some of the bolder changes. I think one of the important aspects of not going quietly with its focus on healthcare is you know, further discussions on what has been the impact of healthcare on their personal lives and have they changed in a way that would enable more people in the future should there be attacks on the healthcare legislation 
to fight back. You know, when you think about Roe, one of the things you see in these elections is people not believing that women were going to come out and vote against people that supported uh, doing away with Roe. And I think what we clearly saw is while many of these people may not be speaking up vocally, they are voting in that way. And so I think, you know, learning from history, learning from these films and others is really important. So I want to say this has been a really important discussion uh, for me, and I hope our audience uh, will now go out and watch your film. And Nick, if you could please tell us how people can look for it. Yes, so um, Not Going Quietly is on Hulu, um, and there is an educational guide that was made by PBS. It broadcast on POV uh, late last year, so you can uh, download that. And we are, of course, um, wanting to do those kinds of impact screenings that you're describing. Of course, the film came out during the pandemic, so a lot of that has been virtual. But if folks go to notgoingquietlyfilm.com and there are activists, organizers, any of those local partner organizations, we would love to do these kinds of events moving forward. And yeah, it's also, you know, available for download on uh, iTunes and Amazon and all that kind of thing. So thank you, Judy, for uh, giving me the opportunity to share the film. And Adi, thank you as always for your friendship and solidarity and, and trust. Thank you so much, Judy. This has been a pleasure. This has been a great opportunity and a great learning experience for me. So thank you both. And I look forward to staying in touch. Now it's time for Ask Judy, a segment where Judy answers questions sent in by listeners. I really appreciated the opportunity to speak with Audie and Nick, both to learn about how the film was made, to learn about Audie's life, and to learn how both of them really expanded their knowledge in a way that enriches both their lives and I think the product they ultimately came up with. Absolutely. And I really enjoyed some of the parallels between you and Audie and your activism. You know, talking about that was really nice to hear in the episode. Yeah, I really like him. <laughs> well, to end the year, we have a question from Carly Fahey, uh, who's a friend of Judy's actually. And she asked, what are your New Year's goals, both personal goals and goals you'd want for the disabled community? My personal goals next year are to try to have a reasonable work-life balance, to do some more things that are fun, go out more to the movies and to the theater. And when I travel, to take a little bit more time to smell the roses, so to speak, where I am. My husband and I, Jorge, had a great time in Mexico this year. So maybe looking at doing another trip like that. As far as goals for the coming year, I would like to see the disability community continue to grow in its representation of the issues that we're needing to address, to see a larger group of people who feel pride in who we are. I'd like to move away from what is the appropriate word to use and get rid of the word able and ability. I can't stand it. And just to be able to look at greater enforcement of laws, disabled people feeling proud about who we are and speaking up and out about it. And reaching out to more people to enable them to feel that their lives are valuable and that they have major contributions they can make. Those are great goals. Thank you for sharing, Judy. Thank you for the question, Carly. And if you're listening and you have a question for Judy, please send it to us at media at judithhuman.com or on Instagram and Twitter. That history won't forget us or try to minimize our pain.
Thanks for tuning in to The Human Perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. If you want to find out more information about this episode's guests or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit judithhuman.com. You can also find a shortened video version of this interview on Judy's YouTube channel, dropping a week after this podcast is published. Otherwise, be sure to check back every other Wednesday for a new podcast episode. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee.